Amen. He is risen. That's my favorite greeting. I love this is the best holiday of the Christian year, isn't it? This morning we are going to start a new series. We're studying the seven I am statements of Jesus. And so I need you to turn to John chapter 11 with me. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm sure you've noticed that uh, there are certain topics that from time to time we try to avoid, right? If we're in a, a brand new relationship or a relationship that's a little bit shaky or sensitive, we avoid some topics, right? Like politics and religion, right? Or the meaning of life, sin, responsibility, race. We avoid certain these topics and kind of drift toward other topics that are a little bit safer, right? Topics, topics that are about stuff, right? Houses and cars and the weather and gardening, right? But every once in a while, you're forced into a conversation or into a setting where you have to think about and talk about death. Right? That, that one topic you really don't want to think about a lot or talk about a lot, but your wife comes home and says, honey, we've lived next to that man for 30 years. You have to go to his funeral, right? You, you got to show up. And so you show up and there's a discussion of death and you're praying and hoping that that talk is short, right? So you can get back to the punch and cookies and start telling jokes and laughing again and move on from that really difficult, sensitive topic that we really don't want to talk about or think about a lot. Why? Because death is frightening. Death is frightening. There's nobody that we know that's gone into the grave, come out of the grave and can tell us, hey, it's all good. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's not bad. Don't worry. We don't know anybody like that. And death is universal. We know that we're, we're all going to face it sooner or later, regardless of how old we are. In fact, uh, for every minute that I've been speaking so far, 107 people have died worldwide. Today, 153,000 people will die in the world. This year, 56, 156 million people will die in the world. Death is universal. Death is frightening. Now, remember, as a child, I, I wasn't really afraid of death. I wasn't uh, that philosophically oriented at that point in my life. I was, actually, I was just afraid of bees. Right? <laughs> uh, more than bees, anything that buzzed like a bee just freaked me out. And I had good reason. I remember one summer, uh, it was right after our church picnic, actually, and I was uh, walking back to our car through a field of clover with no shoes on, and I stepped on a honeybee, and I got a stinger right in the middle of my heel. I'd never been stung before, and it, it just freaked me out. It hurt so bad. It hurt so bad. And then that same summer, I was mowing the lawn for my parents, and the mower bumped into a railroad tie, and out of that railroad tie came a swarm of yellow jackets. And I ran in the house and I got covered. I got four or five stings out of that. And I will tell you, after that point in time, literally for years, if anything buzzed near me, I just freaked out. I was so frightened of bees. And you know, you know what solved that for me was this. I finally learned that the sting doesn't last. Okay, I finally learned that the sting doesn't last. Frederick Buechner once wrote, the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Okay? That's the lesson of John chapter 11. The sting doesn't last, men and women. The sting doesn't last. I want you to read with me in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his, her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, here's the setting. Uh, Jesus had been doing ministry in Jerusalem during the festival of dedication, or as we call it, Hanukkah. And in the course of that ministry, he had come into a conversation with the Jewish leaders, and he had declared to them, I and the Father are one. Not, not one in mission or one in purpose, but one in essence. They understood exactly what he meant. He was declaring his equality with God the Father, and they said, that's blasphemy. And they attempted to kill him, and so Jesus left Jerusalem, and he went back to the region where John had been baptizing, probably the region of Batania. It's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. He fled, he left, because they wanted to kill him. And while he was there, Mary and Martha sent word and said, the one who you love, Lazarus, he's sick. Which was a polite way in that day of saying, Jesus, get here quick. And they knew that what they were asking. They were asking him to come back toward Jerusalem. The city of Bethany was only 1.7 miles away from Jerusalem. They were asking him to put his own life at risk by coming back to Jerusalem. In fact, the disciples understood this as well. If you look in chapter 11, verse 7, it says, After he said this to the disciples, he said, Let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus, are you crazy? And when Jesus finally determines, yeah, we're going to Jerusalem, Thomas says, well, let's go die with him. Right? Might as well, because that's what's going to happen. You know, Jesus wasn't afraid of death. Wasn't afraid of his own death. He wasn't afraid of Lazarus' death. death. He's not afraid of your death. Jesus has never feared death. Why is that? Because he sees beyond. Okay? Jesus, in this moment, Look beyond death. He looked through death to a greater purpose that God could cause through this evil called death. God could bring about a wonderful good. Read with me in verse 4. It says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I want you to notice a few details because the details in the story are highly significant. Notice in verse 1 again, it says there was a certain man who was sick. His name was Lazarus. In many of the miracles that Jesus does, no one's name. There's not a specific name given. In this, it's a certain man. It's a specific man. His name is Lazarus. He's from a specific place. It's a city or village called Bethany. It's a place that you can go to today. Or if you doubted this miracle, you can go to Bethany. John is saying, and you can look up Lazarus and Martha and Mary. They're well known. And you can verify for yourself that this is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. This is something that actually occurred. Specific man in a specific place. In fact, it's a specific family. Again, verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In fact, outside of the disciples, these three were probably his closest earthly friends. He had been welcomed into their home. He'd shared many meals with them. They had supported his ministry financially right before he was about to die. The next chapter, chapter 12, in fact, Mary will come. She will break this costly vial of nard and she will demonstrate how deeply she loves Jesus. She'll pour it out on his feet and take her hair and wipe his feet with her hair. This is a family that he loves so deeply and what a strange way to show his love. 
He doesn't come immediately. Instead, he waits. He waits for two days until he gets word that Lazarus is dead. And again, the details are important. Jesus waits two days so that Lazarus has died. And the journey from Batania to Jerusalem is four days. So he knows by the time that he arrives in Jerusalem, Lazarus will have been in the ground four days. Chapter 11, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And why is this significant? Why are the details significant? Well, in Jewish thought, uh, a person was only mostly dead until the fourth day. Now, after the third day, they were dead dead, right? Really dead. Before that, mostly dead. But then fourth day, completely dead. Now, let me give you a quote from one of the rabbis of the day, Rabbi Bar Kapara. He said, the whole strength of the morning is not till the third day. For three days long, the soul returns to the grave, thinking that it will return into the body. When, however, it sees that the color of its face has changed, then it goes away and it leaves it. Now, there's no historical evidence that after three days, any soul actually returned to any body. But in, in a sense, the, the folklore philosophy of the day, it could. It's hovering around there somewhere and it might look down and say, you know, I'd rather come back. And re-inhabit the body. So if you get to the fourth day, after three days, the fourth day, man, then the person's really dead. And that's when the mourning really erupts, right? Friends and family have had time to arrive. The professional mourners are kicking in. You know, even a poor family was required by social convention to hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner. Can you imagine that being your job? I just had a random thought as I was reading that this week. Imagine, what do you do for work? I'm sad. Right? I'm, I, and, no, really, what do you do? Well, I, I wail. I weep and I wail and I mourn. That's what I do for work. Imagine being married to such a person, right? <laughs> Honey, please leave it at the office, right? I mean, what a job. So Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they're a very wealthy family. They certainly had lots of friends. We're told many Jews came and many professional mourners came. And so by the fourth day when Jesus arrives, it's not like one of our funerals. This is loud. This is ruckus. This is weeping and wailing and mourning and dirt's flying in the air. It's, it's a crazy scene that Jesus walks into, a crazy scene of, of grief. And according to tradition, for seven days, there was supposed to be intense mourning. And then another 30 days of light mourning. This is a, a culture that mourned the dead. So, why did Jesus wait? Why did Jesus wait? Well, Jesus waited because he could see beyond death. He, he saw that God had a plan to take something evil, death, and make something beautiful from it. Read with me chapter 11, verse 4 again. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This is for God's glory, and through God's glory, the Son's glory, and that's why God's allowing it to happen. Jesus is not saying death is good in any respect, and he's not saying suffering is good in any respect. What he's saying is God, in his power, in his greatness, and in his goodness, can take something evil and make something beautiful from it. Why? Chapter 11. In verse 14, 
So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is not just asleep. We're not just going to wake him. Lazarus is dead. And in fact, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. That really is the point of the Gospel of John, men and women. The point of the Gospel of John is to show Jesus as the fullness of the grace and glory of God the Father, God in human flesh, to to show off Jesus so that God may be glorified by people coming to faith and believing in Jesus and trusting only in him. That's why John wrote his gospel, that you would see Jesus as he truly is and believe in Jesus, believe in him. Chapter 11, verse 18, it says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them, they were there concerning her brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she got up and she went out to meet him, but Martha stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha, remember, she just can't sit still, right? She's the older sibling. She's the one that needs to control everything, right, and run the house. She has a hard time sitting still. She's very busy. Her job, her duty in this moment is actually to sit in the house. Others come to her at this point in time. The body's been buried. People come to her, and she sits, and she receives visitors, but she can't sit still. She hears that Jesus is there, and so she runs out to Jesus to to see him and to mildly scold him, right, just mildly. Jesus, you know if you had come sooner, Our brother Lazarus, the one that you love, he would not have died. And yet there's a faith in her that's just kind of brimming up that Jesus wants to to stoke into a full fire. She says, but even now I know that if you ask anything from the Father, that Father can give that to you. Jesus says, you know your brother will rise again. She goes, yeah, I know that someday. She expresses her faith, her confidence in the resurrection, a biblically rooted Biblically rooted, for example, in the book of Daniel, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In fact, uh, in Martha's day, there was a great debate. Is there actually a resurrection or not? And Martha and her family came down on the, fa- on the side of, yes, there is a resurrection. There will be a day of resurrection in which all are raised, the righteous and the unrighteous, She says, I know that Lazarus will be raised in that day. And Jesus tries to point her to the fact that resurrection isn't simply a day or an event, but resurrection is actually, it's a person. It's a person. It is Jesus. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? In John's gospel, his objective is that you may believe in Jesus. That's his point. That's his goal. And so he he structures his book around uh, seven signs, seven miracles, and seven sayings, seven I am's that Jesus makes. Seven miracles, seven signs, and seven I am's. Uh, The resurrection or the the raising up of Lazarus is the seventh and climactic sign 
that Jesus will perform. And he links it with the fifth I am, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? But it's easy for Jesus just to say, I am the resurrection and the life. But how do you prove it? Raise someone from the dead, right? So he links a sign and a miracle. He's made a statement, a miracle, a, a statement, I am the resurrection, and now I'm going to link it with the sign or the miracle to prove, in fact, that I am the resurrection. Now, what's often overlooked, it, it's interesting. Every time I, I see the, uh, John written about, it's always seven I am's and seven miracles. And every time it's preached, it's always seven I am's, seven miracles. But in fact, there are eight I am statements. Right, Jesus says, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? I am the good shepherd. He says all these I am's, but the eighth I am, he just says, I am. Not I am something, but I am. And really, it's the most critical and foundational I am. I want you to turn back to John chapter 8 and verse 48. The eighth I am, in a sense, stands apart. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered and they said to him, Do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow, that's a big statement. Jews said to him, now, in fact, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I do know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham. He rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus was making himself out to be God. Jesus said, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's an allusion to Moses' interaction with God. When God is about to deliver Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he comes and he reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. He says, Moses, go. Deliver my people. Set my people free. Moses says, well, who, who should I say sent me to do this? And God says, I am. Tell them my name. My name, which represents who I am, which is Yahweh. It's where we derive the name, the covenant-keeping name of God. I am that I am. I am the eternally self-existent one. I am dependent on no one and no thing for my existence and for life. Do you want to understand what life is? God is life. So Jesus says, I am. And all of the other I am statements are predicated upon this, that Jesus, in fact, is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who has life in himself, in and of himself. That is who Jesus is. Now let me illustrate. Uh, I, I really enjoy, uh, I enjoy my smartphone because there's so many things I can do on my smartphone. What I hate about my smartphone is 
that I constantly have to plug it in, right? It just drives me crazy. It, it, and it, it, you know, if your smartphone's about a year old, the battery doesn't even last an entire day. So I bought a case that is a battery for my last smartphone. So now I can get through most of a day, unless I'm talking a lot on the phone, then I have to plug it in even during a single day, right? I'm told that the new Samsung can go a week. So I'm thinking, it's about time to switch, right? My smartphone's not as smart as other phones. I got to go somewhere else. But even then, a week, and then you have to plug it in, right? Who remembers the good old days when we had a landline? Anybody? Right? Yeah. I don't, I, I got rid of my landline because I have such a smartphone, so I don't have it any longer. But the great thing about the landline was it always worked. Why? Because it was always plugged in. Right? It was always plugged in. It was always drawing from the source of life, never disconnected. Right? Jesus is saying is, you want to understand what life is, I, I am life. And so if you're connected to me, you are alive. In other words, Martha, the resurrection isn't just this day out in the future or an event sometime. The resurrection is me. I am the resurrection. As Jesus will say in John chapter 5, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is life. As he would say to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life because he will have the source of life in him. All of Jesus' analogies are pointing to this truth. So why did Jesus wait two days till Lazarus had died and then four days until he was dead? Because the sting doesn't last, men and women. The sting doesn't last. And Jesus knew that the sting wouldn't last. He knew that he could see beyond death, through death, to something even greater than Lazarus' death. And so he waited and allowed Lazarus to die. The sting doesn't last. And yet, Jesus still grieved over death. Even knowing that he would set all things right, he still grieved over death. Turn back to John chapter 11. with me in verse 28. John 11, verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and she called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were coming with her in the house and consoling her, When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, as her sister did, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? What's often overlooked in in this section of scripture, really important section of scripture, is that Jesus' emotions are really complex in this moment. His emotions are really complex. First, what's often overlooked is that Jesus is actually angry. 
Jesus is really furious. My translation completely misses this point. If you look in verse 33 again, it says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews also who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. That's a, that's a pretty uh, innocuous translation. That word for being deeply moved in spirit means he basically shuddered with the deepest emotions and he was angry and indignant. Okay, it's an active verb. It means Jesus was angry and he was troubled in spirit. That, that verb uh, describes being agitated or worked up. The first verb could describe an animal when it's snorting and it's pawing the ground or in the Septuagint, a waterfall when it comes crashing down and the water crashes down into the pool below. Jesus is stirred up. Jesus is furious. And he's not furious at Mary and Martha. He loves Mary and Martha. And he's not furious at the mourners because they're just doing their job, Right? What is culturally appropriate for them, for them to do. Who's he furious at? He's furious at his adversary, his enemy. He's furious at Satan, the devil. He's furious at death and all the destruction that Satan has brought into the world. And he knows that he, he's about to do business. Right? He knows he's about to go into uh, Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of death. And he's about to rescue one. And he's angry and he's worked up. And he's ready to say, let's get it on. Let's go. Okay? And we miss that. Again, Jesus' emotions are deeply complex in this moment. He is angry. He is angry, but he is also compassionate. Verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. The the other verb for for crying that's used is is that loud wailing and moaning. But Jesus wept means Jesus burst into tears. And it's a quiet, wrenching sob. It is an ugly cry that Jesus is doing. Okay? There's weeping and wailing all around him, but Jesus bursts into tears and he's shaking. He's shaking with his grief and he's crying. He's, it, this, is, this is an awkward moment for us. right? In, in their day, it wasn't awkward, but for us, this would be a very awkward moment. We see somebody who's crying that deep, ugly cry and they can't stop and their shoulders are shaking. What do we do? Well, one of two responses, either we move away back to the punch and cookies, right? Let's get away from that. Or we go over and we say, it's okay, stop, right? We just try to say something that will stop this moment, this scene, right? Or the best thing that we can do is we could quote them a verse, right? That's what they need in that moment, quote them a verse. And what's the verse that we quote in that moment? Anybody? Romans eight twenty eight, right? Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, those who are called according to purpose, his purposes, it's okay. Want some punch? Right? <laughs> Anything but just stop. Right? Stop. But that's not what God would do. That's not what God did do. Right? In fact, we're commanded, weep with those who weep. Not, not fix those who weep, but weep with those who weep. Be willing to love them enough that you will enter deeply into their grief with them and weep with those who weep. And that's what Jesus did. Remember, he is called man of sorrows. Man of sorrows. He took on our grief. And do we have a little bit of grief? And he took on all the grief of all the world for all time. And Jesus took it on. He's a man of sorrows. In other words, Jesus wasn't simply keep a 
stiff upper lip Jesus. He was man of sorrows, Jesus. And so he weeps, he sobs, he's broken with them. Why? Because he loves them. Simply put, he loves them. So a philosopher named uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, and uh, he lost a child. He lost a, a son. And he said over and over again, he had friends come to him, and they kept saying, you know, well, time will heal all wounds. Time will heal. Time, it, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. You know, he, finally, he's like, you know, I, I don't really want to get over this. This is not the kind of thing in my life that, sh- that I should get over. And he wrote this. Peace, shalom, salam. Shalom is the fullness of life in all dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God, with neighbor, with oneself, in nature. Death is shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. When the writer of Revelation spoke of the coming day of shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live at peace with death. He said that on that day there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I shall try to keep the wound from healing in recognition of our living still in the old order of things. I shall try to keep it from healing in solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's morning bench. Oh, isn't that beautiful? So I have a wound from this broken, fallen world that that shouldn't heal because then I can sit with those who are also mourning and I can weep with those who weep. And I can stand up and I can rejoice with those who rejoice, but I won't avoid either. I won't avoid either, right? Shortest verse in the Bible, what is it? Jesus wept. Well, it's a setup, right? I've, I've, I've tried to trick you with this before. Right, we're in John 11, and so you say Jesus wept. But there are actually uh, two verses that tie in English, right? Jesus wept, and then 1 Thessalonians five sixteen, Rejoice always. Wow, that's kind of strange, isn't it? What a weird paradox. And actually, in Greek, rejoice always is, is a one word shorter. Shortest verse in the Bible is actually rejoice always. Second is Jesus wept. But what a strange paradox, right? Rejoice always, Jesus wept. So was Jesus rejoicing always even while he wept? I, I believe so. Because again, his emotions were so deeply complex in this moment. He could rejoice because he knew in just a few minutes... They would begin to feast and they would celebrate and they would dance and they would sing and they would shout for joy and they would cry tears of joy. And Jesus saw that and he knew that. And so he could, he could look at humanity in its pain and its agony and its suffering over death and all this weeping and also know that he could bring them joy and he would bring them joy in just moments. Why? Because, men and women, the sting doesn't last. Right? The sting doesn't last. And now we come to the most beautiful part of the story in John chapter 11, where Jesus uh, defeats death. John chapter 11 and verse 38. It says, so Jesus again being deeply moved within, he came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around it, I said, so that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let him go. Lazarus was, he was dead, dead, right? Stone cold dead, dead for four days. And now he's completely alive, utterly and completely alive, right? Completely healed. They unwrap him. He's in absolutely perfect health. And wouldn't you love to know what he experienced, right? Why didn't John ask? Why didn't John write that down? I've always wondered. I mean, surely John did ask and he just decided not to include it, which I say, that's, man, I want to know that part of the story. But John, that's not really the point. That's not the most important part of the story. What is the point of the story? Well, the point we see in verse 45, it says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. That's the point, right? That's the point. The reason that Jesus waited, the reason that Jesus delayed and he allowed his close, close friend to die and, his, and the family to suffer and grieve, grieve and, and mourn. Why? So that his glory could be displayed, that he has the absolute power over sin and death, Why? So that they would believe in him, that he is the resurrection and he is the life. Read with me again, verse 25, chapter 11, verse 25. As Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? He says, I am the resurrection and and that's That's a statement, it's a declaration, but I'm going to prove it to you by raising your brother from the dead. And this is grammatically a little bit challenging to understand, but he's saying this, the sting doesn't last. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And if God doesn't return, or Jesus doesn't return, at some point soon, every single one of us, we will die, but we'll live. Our death will not be the end, the sting will not last, That death will simply be a pathway forward into life itself, eternal life. So, we're not compelled to live by fear. According to the Bible, the moment that you die, you are in the presence of the Lord. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or as he says in Philippians chapter 1, I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better In other words, he says, I'd love to stay on and help you out a little bit more, but really what I long for most is to be with Jesus Christ. And he hasn't released me to go to be with him, so I guess I'm stuck here with you and I'll help you as much as I can as long as I'm here. But I know that the moment that I die, I will be in the presence of the Lord. I will not have my resurrection body yet. I have to wait for that just as Lazarus is waiting for his even now. But I know in my spirit who I am, I will be in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated death for us. Okay? This is not a story simply that is about Lazarus. He didn't just defeat death, death for Lazarus. Lazarus was a case study. He was an illustration so that the Jews around would believe, so that we would hear the story and that we would believe. He defeated death for us as well. Have you ever noticed that when he comes to the tomb, he calls Lazarus out by name. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Right? Lazarus, come forth. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if he had just said, come forth? I'm just guessing that everybody that could hear would have just jumped up right then. Like, all right, let's go. But no, he says, no, it's not your turn yet. Just Lazarus. Right? Lazarus, it's your turn. 
Lazarus, come forth. I want you to listen to these words from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children, that is, that's us, right? Men and women. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That is, God took on human flesh. That's who Jesus is, God in human flesh. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. See, a, a man hanging on the cross, a man dead on the cross, a man taken down from the cross and put dead into the grave looks like a defeat. It looks like Satan had won. We remembered that on Good Friday. Jesus punished for our sins, and it looks like a victory, and I imagine that the demonic forces were celebrating and rejoicing in death, right? the death of the Son of God, but through death, Jesus rendered powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That is, Jesus took something evil. Death is not good, and God doesn't call it good. Death is evil, but what God can do in his beauty, his sovereignty, his powers, he can take the most evil thing that we face in life, death, and he can make something wonderful from it. That is, he can create life that is no longer subject to death. And so the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, we don't have to live in fear any longer, right? No fear. There's no longer any fear for us in death. So how do we apply this? Let me give you uh, three questions to consider on this uh, Easter weekend. The first is simply this. Do you believe? That's the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe? And maybe you've been coming to church all your life, right? And it's just never really, it's just never sunk in. That this is not a myth, it's not a fairy tale, and nor is this uh, something that's true just for humanity in general, but it's, it's for you. Jesus died and he rose again for you. There may be, uh, as my friend likes to say, we have lots of CEOs here this morning. And we love CEOs, Christmas and Easter only, right? Your family drug you here, and now you're here, and you have to listen to a discussion of death. It's really a discussion of life, but in your times where you've popped in and out, it's never clicked. We're not discussing religion, we're discussing life. We're discussing life. We're discussing a, a way in which your debt of sin can be removed completely and finally and fully simply by saying, Jesus, I believe. I believe that, that you died for me. I believe that you were raised for me. I believe. Do you believe? If you've never had that moment where you said to God, I believe, let me encourage you. This is a wonderful day. It's the best day for you to do it. Hey, do you believe? Second, do you live without fear? Hey, we know that Lazarus died again. Right? Lazarus isn't here today. Lazarus died again. So they had a second funeral. And I wonder, what was the second funeral like? I'm guessing the second funeral, there was a lot less weeping and wailing. A lot more rejoicing. Right? And how did Lazarus live in between the first funeral and the second funeral? I, I think that he lived pretty fearlessly. Right? right? I already died. What else do I have to lose, right? You know? On my way to Jericho, a lot of traffic. Well, I got all of eternity. It's hard to frustrate him, right? Hard to frustrate him. Well, sickness. Yeah, well, this sickness. This sickness might end in death. And then I've got eternity. The Romans are oppressing me. Well, they might beat me. They might stone me. They might throw me in prison. might even crucify me like they did Jesus. And then, oh, then I've got eternity. I, don't, and I just imagine that 
His whole perspective on the trials and tribulations of life was completely and utterly different. Do you live today in light of resurrection, eternal life, and eternity? Courageously, fearlessly, boldly. And then who will you tell? Who will you tell? I, I also surmise that Lazarus didn't really want to talk about houses and donkeys and gardens, right? I, I think he probably wanted to talk about really significant things. I imagine uh, when you would meet Lazarus, he would probably say, hey, uh, did I ever tell you about the time I was in the tomb for four days, right? That's what I want to talk about. Let's talk about that. Did I ever tell you about the time that Jesus was in the tomb and I saw him raised? Did I ever tell you about the resurrection? Did I ever tell you about eternal life? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who are bold and courageous that live in light of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of our own resurrection that will give us life that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are not a God who who makes light of the, the tears that we shed on this earth. Yet we thank you even more that you are a, a God who has overcome those tears and uh, any fears that we might have of our greatest enemy, death. We, we approach that day, that moment, uh, with confidence, with boldness, because we know Jesus has overcome. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. He's overcome the grave. And so we have hope. We have confidence. And I pray, Father, even this morning that we would leave with a new sense of boldness in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. He is risen. See you next week. Have a blessed week.